Lord, that we can understand the things freely given to us in your word. And I pray, Father, that as we look today on this lesson before us, that we can um, understand more clearly who you are in your being. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us, and through the aid of your spirit, may we have a better grasp today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so today we continue in our study on the attributes of God, and um, we talk about the communicable attributes of God and, um, and the incommunicable attributes of God. So um, we look at attributes describing God's being in this in our chapter today, and uh, when we talk about God's being, we talk about his essence, right? Who is God? So when we talk about the essence and being of God, two things become apparent. Number one is that God is spirit. And by virtue of that, God is invisible. I need a napkin. Are there tissues here? Or? Oh, right in the back of that table. Oh, my. Thank you. Thank you. So the Bible tells us that God is spirit. Let's look in our Bibles in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, we read about the Lord's interaction with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. It's amazing that John records this incident, and it's with purpose. The Samaritans were considered half-breed Jews and looked down upon by the Jews from Judea, particularly the Pharisees. Then on top of that, she was a woman who was married several times, considered an immoral woman, and is the last person that a religious person or someone who's spiritual would converse with or have anything to do with. And yet the Lord Jesus takes his time and reveals some very important spiritual truths to her. In John chapter 4, we read in verse um, 16, And Jesus said to her, Call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, perceive that you are a prophet, and our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but... You say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers of God will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So one of the first things we discover about God's essence and being is that he is spirit. The Samaritan woman was caught up with understanding, well, we worship here and you worship there. And Jesus says, listen, this is not a matter of different doctrine. You're wrong and we're right. 
Salvation is of the Jews. But the time's coming where none of that's going to matter where you worship. The location of worship is, is insignificant. What matters is in the approach to worship. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so the geographical location does not matter as much as are we worshiping him in spirit or through the spirit and in truth. And ultimately, that's fulfilled in the giving of the Holy Spirit that allows human beings to commune with God through the union with Christ. But it tells us something significant about God and ontologically that God is spirit. What do we mean by spirit? What do we mean by spirit? What does that mean? Formless. Okay. That's form. Less. Okay. What else? Invisible. Right. That fits right in the chapter. Invisible. Right. What else? What else does the word spirit mean? No flesh. Not a physical body. Immaterial. Immaterial. Right? God. That's a good word there, right? Immaterial. When we think of something that is material, it is made up of matter, right? We live in a material universe. Everything's made up of matter. We're made of matter. This bench is made of matter. This mic is made of matter. This board is made of matter. Even the air around us is made of matter, right? We live in a material universe. God is immaterial. Very good. Right? So God is spirit. What else do we think of when we think of God being a spirit? If he's immaterial, what are the implications of that? Everything that's material, what, well, let's look at it from a different perspective. If something is material and consists of matter, what, what are the attributes of something that's material? You can see it, feel it, touch it. See it, feel it, touch it, right? That all goes back to invisible, formless. Well, what else about that? It's it's finite. It's finite. Yes, right. So the things that are material have a beginning and have an end, right? Matter is is well, technically matter is indestructible, but it changes form. But we but the Bible tells us that eventually all matter will cease to exist, right? God is going to destroy the material universe with destructible destructible fire. First, uh, Second Peter three. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead, Naveen. I'm sorry. Give him the microphone. It's present everywhere. It, yeah, it's present everywhere. Correct. And it, well, in, in the same sense, God is omnipresent, isn't he? Right? So God's spirit doesn't, con because he's immaterial, he's not confined to one location. Right? To say that God is confined to one location is to not misunderstand who God is. Solomon said the heavens and the heavens of the heavens can't contain thee how much less this temple that I built. 
right? The idea of God being contained in a building is just absurd. God is spirit, and so he fills all of the universe with his presence, right? And that tells us that God can be in two places at once, right? God can be in a million places at once. The Lord does not verse time and space. The Lord is equally present all of the place, all of the time, right? When we think of our universe, our universe is made up of three components. Right? Space, time, and matter. That's the universe. And it tells us in Scripture that this universe that consists of these three attributes came into existence how? God spoke it forth into existence. So the material universe exists and God exists outside of it. He is not contained, constrained, or confined to any of these three aspects. This is why God can equally be present here and now in the presence of Grace and Truth Church at 1.435 p.m. in Hartsdale, New York on June 11th, and equally present on Pluto at the far recess of our galaxy, and equally present in the year 25 A.D. when the Lord Jesus was a carpenter in Galilee. Because God is not confined to time and space like we are. Go ahead, Rick. So, um, <clears throat> speaking of fallen spirits, um, they're not omnipresent, yet they're also invisible and formless. Correct. So, so, so we talk about the spirit realm, right? God is spirit. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us he's the father of spirits, right? So no life can exist outside of God. God spoke forth material universe into existence. Consequently, he created the angelic realm, right? All the angels were created. And we know, I don't want to get too much off on a bunny trail here, but right, God created the angelic realm, and there was a rebellion within the angelic realm. Lucifer, the chief, one of the chief archangels, rebelled against God and led a third of the angels away from heaven. Revelation 12, Ezekiel 28, describes this in great detail, Isaiah 14. And thus we have the angels who minister and God's servants, and you have demons, which are fallen spiritual beings. They are incorporeal, they are spirit spirit beings, so that means they, they, they exist in a sense eternally, they don't die like we do, they're invisible but they are not God they're created beings, they're creatures God's the creator so God exists God still created spiritual creatures whether it's angels or demons to exist within the space, time, matter continuum God exists outside of it God is what we call transcendent God is outside of everything that exists. I like to think of it this way. We live in what physicists understand to be the third dimension. Right? So we live in a three-dimensional world. And, you know, when I look at you or you or you, I see three-dimensional beings. There's spatial uh, three dimensions. I could see the three dimensions of the, of the pews, Right? There, there's spheres and there's squares and you understand the shape of it, right? <clears throat> if I draw 
a stick figure here. That stick figure. <laughs> you might have a pastor in the hospital today. <laughs> that stick figure is two-dimensional, right? It's not a plane of existence. That two-dimensional figure, let's assume that two-dimensional figure was alive, could not comprehend or see anything in the third dimension because it exists on a plane. Everything would just seem like a flat line to a being on the second dimension. Right? The second dimension is no, no different than a piece of paper from my Bible. It's flat. And so if you were a living being, hypothetically speaking, in the second dimension, everything would just simply look like that. We're on the third dimension. God transcends that. God is on another dimension. Some physicists imagine that there are 11 dimensions altogether in the universe. Um, the hypothesis is that at least in the fourth or fifth dimension, you have time, right? And uh, you can live outside of time in the fourth or fifth dimension. God transcends all of that. And just as a, a two-dimensional creature can't see a three-dimensional creature, we who are living in the third dimension can't quite possibly see, perceive, or know who God is on our own. Unless God chooses to reveal himself. So in the Old Testament... God reveals himself through what's that word there? A theophany. What is a theophany? Anybody could tell me? Go ahead, Rick. An appearance of Jesus or God. Appearance of Jesus or God. Okay, anyone else? What is a theophany? God's word, okay. It's a physical manifestation of God. Very good, thank you. And I think you're all right. You're, you're kind of moving on. God physically manifests himself within the space-time-matter continuum. What are some examples of theophanies in the Old Testament? Moses and the burning bush, right? And God appeared to Moses in the physical manifestation of fire. I think that's amazing because the Bible says that God is an all-consuming fire. We have to approach him with reverence and awe. Right? I often think of that because we talk about hell burning with fire. This is not some fire that exists outside of God. It is the very wrath of God himself burning. We have to consider who God is. It's a holy fire. It's an eternal fire. It's a fire that's not simply man-made. And so um, God appears to Moses in the burning bush. That's one manifestation. So I think in the book of Joshua, he showed up as well as a warrior. Yeah, the, the, the general of the army of the Lord, right? Yeah. All right, so that's another good one. What else? He appeared to Samson's parents as the, as the what? The fire, yeah, but but more importantly, who, who is this figure that God appears as often in the old covenant? The angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. <laughs> Come on, Mari, you're cheating over there. <laughs> angel of the Lord. Oftentimes, right, one of the interesting occasions is in Genesis chapter 
uh, 17. Turn me in your Bibles to Genesis 17. And of course, it was the angel of the Lord who appeared to Samson's mother. Seventeen. This is a newer Bible. It's hard to turn the pages. It's my preaching Bible. Okay. And so in um, Genesis, well, let's let's verse eighteen, chapter eighteen, rather. Chapter 18, verse 1, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, and he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. Arrest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three Sarahs of fine flour, knead it, make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. And they took curds and milk and the calf that he prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the trees while they ate. And so God manifests his presence in the form of a man with two other men who were angels. And not only that, but he sat and ate a meal with Abraham. Now this was a temporal manifestation. Right? As soon as God's mission was done there, his presence would withdraw, and the angel of the Lord would withdraw from there. Later we see that the two angels go down to Sodom. We know the story what happens there. The people of the city of Sodom want to rape the angels, and God brings judgment upon them. But the Lord brings Abraham out to the cliff and looks over Sodom and says he's going to bring judgment, and the Lord and Abraham intercedes for Sodom. But the thing that's really important to see is two things. It says that Abraham bowed before the Lord. If this wasn't God, he would have said, get up, right? Because we know in the book of Revelation, whenever John bowed before the angels, the angels said, get up. For I am like you, a creature, only bow before God. But not only did uh, the Lord here receive the worship, but was referred to as Lord in verse 33. It says, and the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So God had appeared in this physical manifestation of a man. And this physical manifestation of a man appears repeatedly in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. What are some other forms that God appears as in the Old Testament? Go ahead, brother. So um, at, in, in Matthew 3, the baptism of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit that came down in some, they said like a dove. Yeah. Well, there was a physical manifestation, Voice. correct. The Holy Spirit is not a dove, but rep- manifested his presence. as Calvary a Chapel thinks it is. Okay, that's good. Well, I mean, Those Arminians. But anyway, that's not good. But no, God, the Holy Spirit manifested himself. Well, I mean, there's a beautiful picture of the Trinity, right? 
both the Father, the Son, and the whole, all three persons of the Godhead. Behold, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Lord Jesus is being baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. So we saw all three persons of the Godhead together inaugurating the work of Christ's messianic ministry. All right, what other forms in the Old Testament? I want to move on. Go ahead. Okay. I'm, thank you. I'm looking at the sacrifice of, a, of Isaac mm -hmm. when Abraham brought Isaac up and the lamb appeared, but also it, the angel of uh, the angel, the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And I'm just wondering if that was a theophany. Well, any voice that you're hearing is a physical manifestation of God's transcendent presence in the space-time continuum. Okay? So the, the ram was just the, the, the sacrifice exactly. that God provided instead of Isaac, which was a foreshadow of Christ. But the ram itself was just an animal. All right, so one of the things I was thinking about is when you think of um, Israel in the wilderness, God manifests his presence how? For 40 years and 40, for 40 years, how did God manifest his presence? Yeah, pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day. Remember that the pillar confounded the Egyptians and routed them when they were chasing them and forced them into the Red Sea. And so there was this cloud, which we refer to as the Shekinah glory of God. It was the same cloud that descended upon the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. It was the awesome and fearful and terrible presence of God, right? Or on Mount Sinai, the dark, thick cloud with fire and lightning descended. It was the presence of Almighty God. These are all physical manifestations. What about the manna? Manna was manna. It's a picture of Jesus. It's a picture of Christ, but it was manna. It was food. It was food. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a picture of Christ. It's a type, just like the ram is a type, but it's not Jesus. The manna was not Jesus. The manna was bread, miraculous bread that God provided for his people. With all of that said, then the question becomes, of all these manifestations of God's presence in the Old Covenant, who are we looking at? Can't be God the Father. Turning your Bibles to John chapter 1. Does anyone have a King James Version on them today? Where's Pastor Paul when you need him? That's all right. I think Marcia has a King James, right? No, you don't. Okay. Tony usually has one. All right. So in John's Gospel, chapter 1, you know, one of the greatest chapters regarding the incarnation. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. The Word of God, right? Jesus is the Logos, the eternally existent Son of God, the expression, the, the Word of God, right? has become flesh. So, so the ultimate theophany is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That is where God literally becomes a man and condescends and takes on all the limitations. I want you to think of that. You exist outside of this. You created this and you decide to enter this and become a puny little human being. 
restricted to all the limitations of humanity. When you think about that, that's incredible. If you remember back in the 80s, there was a famous movie, uh, Coming to America, Eddie Murphy and Ar Arsenio Hall. I think they made a sequel recently. Very funny movie, right? And uh, in that movie, you know, Eddie Murphy's a king in Africa. He's like, you know, his people bow and worship at his feet and he's, has, you know, he's filthy rich and he, he wants to find a wife and he decides to come to America and take on the form of a, of a poor person and he works in McDonald's and just seems like an average you know, an average guy, because he wants to marry someone who doesn't want him for his money and his prestige, but someone who loves him just for who he is. And it's a comedy movie, but, you know, it gives you a glimpse. Like, to imagine forsaking all that glory and power and working at McDonald's. And, and how much more is it that the Son of God, who has angels surrounding him, worshiping him day in and day night, crying out, holy, 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 descends and confines himself to humanity? Not only that, but subjects himself to the abuse and torture and ridicule of his creatures. It's insanity. And yet, it's the mystery of divine love. So, back to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1. We read this in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Anybody want to read that from the King James? That last verse? Verse 18. Whew, I love the way the King James puts that. No one's ever seen God, but the Son has seen him, and the Son declares him. That's the word. That's why he's called the word of God, the logos of God. He declares who God is. When Jesus speaks, what does Jesus say in John chapter 5? I never say anything that the Father doesn't give me to say. Whatever I say, the Father says. Right? The, the Father entrusts all judgment to the Son because the Son glorifies the Father. I and the Father are one. I do nothing apart from my Father. Philip, you've been with me so long. Haven't you known that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? No one has ever seen God the Father, and no one ever will. Only one person has seen God the Father and beheld his glory, and that is God the Son. Now, the people who lived in the first century saw God the Son incarnate. And there have been people throughout the church age who have seen manifestations or Christ has revealed himself in his glorified state to different human beings. Very rare. Doesn't happen. That's not something that happens every day. And usually 
people claim they've seen Christ don't believe him because most of the time they're lying. Well, for instance, Paul. Paul saw the risen Christ. He appeared to him as a bright light and he fell as though dead. John saw the risen Christ and he fell as though dead. So, so one correlation you could make is that if you've seen the presence of God, if there's one common denominator through the Old Testament, New Testament, you'll see time and time again, whenever someone does see God's presence, what do they do? They fall as <laughs> It'll kill you. Look at Exodus chapter 33. Now, in Exodus chapter 33, we read about the aftermath of the golden calf incident. And Moses is um, seeking the Lord's favor. Because at this point, the Lord was so disgusted with, um, with Israel. He says, you guys are on your own, and I'm not with you anymore. And, and the Lord Lord you know, was testing Moses. Not that the Lord was actually going to do that, but he was testing Moses. And so in verse 12, we read of Exodus 33, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you said, I know you by name, and you have found, I have found favor in your sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people and he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will go, not go with me, do not bring me up from out of here. For now shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and I and your people. Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And so Moses is pleading and interceding, God, do not leave us. We need you. I'm not going to leave these people. These are your people. We need your presence to be with us. In verse 17, and the Lord spoke unto Moses, this very thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Oh, isn't that beautiful? I know you by name. Isn't that what the Lord Jesus said in John chapter 10? I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, and I know them by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. <laughs> show me your glory. He's asking He's asking the Lord to show him the fullness of his glory. You have to admire Moses, right? For his faith, right? He had, he, this is a man of faith. He, had, he felt close enough to God to even make this request. And he did have a very close relationship with God. I want you to hold this thought in your head for a moment. Verse 19, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy to whom I show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. So what is this telling us? Why has no man ever seen the glory of the Father? Not even Moses could see the glory of the Father. And he was the most humble man on the face of the earth. Why was he unable? Why did God, why couldn't God reveal his full glory to Moses? The answer's right there. What will happen? Eric? 
You'll die, right? Any man who sees me will not live. Why do you die? Why will you die? God, it would be like a tsunami. It would be like a tsunami of fire upon us. We would evaporate. God is holy, holy, holy. We are sinners, defiled and filthy and dirty. How could we stand in the presence of a holy God? And as good as Moses was, as holy as Moses was, as humble as Moses was, it was not good enough. He found favor in the sight of God, but it was still not good enough. There is only one who can stand in the presence of the Father. There is only one mediator. Moses was a mediator in the old covenant for Israel, for a covenant that was temporal and that had temporal blessings. But we have a mediator of a better covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, our high priest, who stands in the heavenly places, interceding for us forever and ever. You understand that? We need a mediator. No one can come before God on his own laurels or terms. We would be evaporated. Where's the mic? Isn't that wonderful, though? Here is Moses asking God to show him his glory. And he saw the burning bush. And God did not consume him. Yes. You see the condescension of God mm -hmm. to us? We are not able to stand before him. And yet, he humbled himself. He come down, condescend so to us. I mean, I, I just, you can't conceive it. You know, it's so wonderful. It's beyond us that God would do such thing. It's too wonderful. I agree. Go ahead, Latricia. What about on Judgment Day? Would that be the day where he would show himself? That's a good question. So I'm, I'm kind of leading up to there, right? So as humans right now, we can't see God still, where there's still that veil. It's for our good. It's for our protection, right? Just to kind of summarize what happened. So God let his goodness pass before him. And his goodness, not his glory, but his goodness, the backside of his presence passed by Moses while Moses was covered in the cleft of the rock. Let's read through it. I, I don't want to paraphrase. Let's just read through it. And verse 21, and Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my backside, but my face shall not be seen. And so the Lord fulfilled this in verse 6 of chapter 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and truthfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and sin. Notice this, God covers him in mercy 
with his hand, puts him in the, I love that song by, um, he covers me in the cleft of the rock. You guys know the old hymn. And um, he covers him and, and he sees the backside. But notice, how does God reveal himself? Through declaration, through proclamation. God reveals himself what is tolerable for humanity by declaring who he is. Declaring he is righteous and holy and just and forgiving and abounding in love and mercy. And so the revelation of God to humanity is always bound up in declaration. So when we get to John chapter 1, no one has seen God but the Son and the Son of God, what? Declares him. The ministry of the Son is that very thing, the ministry of the Word. He is the living Word of God. The Logos, he declares. You want to know who God is? Listen to Jesus. He makes God known. In other words, you know God not by seeing him, you know God by hearing him. God is understood through hearing, not through sight. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And so God is invisible, formless, immaterial. God is spirit. And in order to worship him, we worship him in spirit, through the spirit dwelling in us, and truth. The truth about God that's revealed in his word. So this gets back to what you were asking. When Moses came down from the mountain, just that partial experience was enough that his face was glowing. His head was glowing and illuminated and it frightened everybody. So they had to put a veil on him. He had to walk with a veil to cover his head because, well, quite truthfully, they were scared out of their wits. How many people do you see walking around with their heads glowing? It's not the normal everyday thing. But the Bible tells us in the same way that we are glowing for God. There's a glow in us through the Holy Spirit. And although it's not visible one day, one day we will see him face to face. That's the promise. God's preparing us for this very thing. You see, back to the Garden of Eden, man and God walked in the cool of the day together. And man and God communed face to face. Sin came in and disrupted all that. So we cannot see God face to face. But there's coming a day where we will. Turn me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. Look at this, 1 John 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears... We shall be like him because we shall what? See him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now turn with me also to 1 Corinthians chapter 
13. First Corinthians chapter 13. The whole point of chapter 13 is that love is the greatest thing, right? doesn't matter how gifted and how spiritual you are or how religious you are. What matters is love. Verse 8 says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. Tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Now listen to this, verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even I as I have been fully known. So, so, the hope that we have is that one day, although we are children of God and we've been redeemed and Christ is our intercessor, he's our mediator, we've been granted access to the Father, that access is still limited by our flesh, by our sinful nature, by our humanity. But when we put off the flesh and we enter into the presence of God, then we will behold him as he is because we will be completely free from sin. Now, this doesn't mean God is has a form as we do. But whatever his glory... I mean, you, you read Revelation 5. It talks about, you know, the imagery of God the Father's glory and it's rainbows and diamonds and jewels. And, and it's, just, it's just spectacular glory. John, this is a vision John's given that's beyond comprehension. It's a vision. It's not actually God himself, but a vision. And so in the same sense, when we get there, we will fully know him and see him face to face as he knows us. So God um, hide Moses yeah. in the cleft of the rock. Yes, he did. But he couldn't um, see him. But also, he hide us in Christ. Correct. We were not able to see God the Father in his fullness. No. Uh, no, we would see him in Christ. We is in Christ. Even when John said that um, we will see him as he is, uh, really referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, not really God the Father in his fullness. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. Everything we know about God is, is through the hearing, through the word, that God has revealed about himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Right? God has spoken to us. We've gone through this verse, Hebrews chapter 1, in, in many ways, and, and through the prophets, the fathers, and ultimately he's spoken to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, so this reminds us something, that, that the invisible God, the spirit God, made himself tangible through Jesus Christ. He is the full manifestation of God. And this is why Jesus says, there's no way to the Father but by me. It's really simple. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. All that God has given him is bound up. All his authority. Look in John chapter 5. I referred to it before, but I'd like to read it. And by the way, the whole gospel of John... Next time you read through the, the book of John on your own devotional time, think of this theme, which is the major theme in John, the oneness of God, the Father, and God, the Son. 
In every chapter, that theme reoccurs. The theme, the whole point of John's gospel is that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In John chapter 5, we read this. Verse 19, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he wills. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Whereas the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and they will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. God the Father has entrusted all judgment and all life-giving work to the Son. And so when you talk about Judgment Day, Latricia, when we stand before God on judgment, it's through before the Son we stand. Every human being, as it says in Revelation, will stand before the great white throne of judgment of the Lamb of God. Matthew 25 talks about the great white. This is the judge. Christ will judge the nations. Christ will judge every person. And the Father's entrusted him to that. No one's going to get a, an appeal and bypass the Son to the Father. Not going to happen. And I think that this needs to give us a greater picture for who Christ is. It needs to give us a picture that as Christians, we are called to worship the Son, to honor the Son. As he says, if you don't honor me, you don't honor the Father. Look in Psalm chapter 2, which is, um, I believe, exactly what the Lord is referring to here in John 5. Bear with me. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on my holy hill, and I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. 
Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in your way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Christ is that Son, the Messiah, who will judge the earth. And why not? He came to offer salvation. You know, let me, let me, I'm going to wrap this up now, but I want to, I want to wrap this up with the gospel because the concept of Christ judging seems like so hard to digest for some people, but, but Christ is all love and he's the savior and God's the terrible, angry old man from the old Testament. And we need the father to calm down them. I mean, we need the son to calm down. No, that's, that's just rubbish. It's such a false understanding of the Bible. Christ comes to bear witness to the Father, to show us to the Father, to reveal the Father. And the good news is this, he offers us peace. We're God's natural enemies, and we deserve to be punished. And so God, God is going to judge every human being on Judgment Day, no doubt about it, 100%. But in this meantime, we're in what we call an age of grace, and so the Son offers us peace. Right? It tells us in Romans 5, 1, that through Christ we have what? Peace with God, shalom with God. There's no peace with God apart from Christ. He offers us that peace, that reconciliation. Lay down your weapons. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Be part of my kingdom. Surrender to me. I'm the king. You're not the king. I'm the king. <coughs> Everyone who surrenders and comes to Christ finds forgiveness of their sins, your record's cleaned, you enter into the joy of your master, and now you're a member of the family. And we tell other people it's good news. We want to get other people into the kingdom. All right, that open door we talked about in, the, in our sermon today. But once the Lord closes the door, once the Lord comes back a second time, that's it. Now there's no second chances, there's no appeals, I've given you so many chances and you kept saying, no, 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 you spurned my grace. Look at Romans chapter 2. You see, that's what makes, that's what's going to make God's judgment so righteous on judgment day. God is not unfair. God is exceedingly, exceedingly gracious. No one could tell God you're unfair. You're harsh. In Romans chapter 2, it says this in verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You know what that's saying here? We experience the grace of God on a daily basis. Even unbelievers who completely spurn God, who don't believe in him, who blaspheme, who live like utter filthy pagans every day, God is good to them. God is kind. It tells us in the Bible that God is kind to the evil and to the just. He sends rain on both. It's called God's common grace. But all that kindness and all that favor and forbearance and patience 
doesn't mean God's a weakling. That kindness is meant to point you to him. It's meant to bring about repentance. So when the day of judgment comes, God will say, I have done all these things to show who I am to you. And you kept spurning me over and over and over and over. It actually, the word there used, um, it says here, because of your heart and penance and heart, you're storing up. The word storing up there is actually the word that's used for investing money with compound interest. You know when you invest in a mutual fund or an ETF, you put in a little money each month, and little by little that grows, it compounds interest. You watch it over 10-year period of portfolio, what started as maybe $5,000 adds up to maybe 100000 if you have a good investment. What I'm trying to say here is, and what the scripture is saying here is that when you resist God and harden your heart against his kindness, you're treasuring and storing up wrath with compound interest. You're accumulating and storing up and treasuring judgment on yourself. That's why Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. It would have been more bearable. It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it will be for you. Why? Because they, if they saw the things you've seen, they would have repented with sackcloth and ashes long ago. And this is for us as God's people when we think of how much we've been exposed to, how much God has shown us. Oh, to whom much is given, much will be required. So when we talk about the spirituality of God, the invisibility of God, we understand that although God cannot be seen or known uh, visibly, he can be heard, and we know him through the Son. And there's one final application I'll put towards this, and that is the application of the second commandment. What is the second commandment? Anybody, what is the second commandment? Oh, Lord, am I doing my job? What is the second commandment? I'm failing. No, 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 the second commandment. Yeah, thank you, Eric. Oh, gosh, thank you, Lord. At least, at least the preacher knows. Thank God. You just saved yourself, brother. Um, you shall not make any graven image. And obviously it's much deeper than that. If God is spirit and he's invisible, why? What makes the second commandment so, so relevant? Exactly. Beautiful. Yes. We know that Christ came into this world he came, as very well put, a Jewish man, Middle Eastern man in the first century. That was just his incarnation. God is spirit. And we dare not make God into any human being or make him to our level or any creature or anything or any imagination. God is God. He made us in his likeness. Not that God is a two-arm, two-leg humanoid with, with, with a head. But we bear his likeness in a sense that we are spiritual beings capable of worship, 
We're intellectual beings. We have the capacity to think, to reason, to create. And that we're emotional beings. That as the Lord can love and the Lord can feel wrath and the Lord can feel compassion, so we are moved by emotionals. We are not just stoic rocks. We are not mindless animals and beasts. But we are given the image of God to worship God and to honor him, to commune with our creator. And so when you create an idol, when you make a statue and you bow down to that, you lower God and reduce him. You confine him to this. That's why God says, I made the tree. And you take the tree, and, and this is what he says to Isaiah, and you make one piece of wood, you make an idol, and you bow down to it. Another one, you use the fire for cooking. Isn't it ridiculous? I made the wood. I have the cattle on a thousand hills. And that's why we worship God in spirit and truth. All right, any questions or comments before we close? Marcia? Isn't that um, uh, when he said to Israel, I did not give you a form, but you heard the word, my voice. Is that what he said? Is, is that how I'm um, getting that? Is that what you're talking about when we, we don't worship God in an image? No form was given to us. He's saying to Israel, no form was given to you, but you heard my voice. Exactly. And this is exactly what I said before. We know God through hearing, not through seeing. We'll see face to face on that day. But until then, our relationship with God, our communion with God is through hearing, not seeing. And we, the, the sight that we do have is seeing with the eyes of faith. That's the eyes of our heart, right? Ephesians 1 talks about the eyes of the heart beholding Christ, who is the image of the who is the image of God. And so we we behold Christ in faith. But that's not visible seeing, tangible seeing. It's spiritual seeing. Right? And so we, we believe not because we see, we see because we believe. And in First John, um, when, he, when John says we will see him as he is, and I thought about that because John did see him when he rose from the dead. He let them see his glorified body. Mm -hmm. When he said, look at the nail print, he was talking to Thomas. So John could say that. Because he see him in his glorified body. Isn't that wonderful? Well, it was still limited. He didn't see him in the fullness of his glory. Right. You right. read John, Revelation chapter 1, Revelation 5, gives a glimpse of the fullness of the glory of God. And it's, you know, that's when John falls as though dead. <laughs> so it's far different than his experience in Galilee when they're eating fish by the Sea of Galilee. It's a terrifying vision that causes him to fall as though dead. Anyone else? Any questions, comments? The Lord wants people to worship him in spirit and truth in this, t in this teaching today. I, I missed that. I'll have, is this is recorded. I'll have to go listen. Okay. I don't want you to go through it again. No worries. Anyone else? I think we, we're, we're about done.
where's Pastor Paul when you need him? Don't you miss Paul here? Like, you know, 92, and his, his wheels are always turning, and I, I'm so blessed I miss him. I really do miss him. Uh, let's pray that he gets better and gets back to uh, be with us soon. All right. Um, if that's, there's nothing else at this point. We're going to close in prayer. And I'm going to ask Anthony, could you close us in prayer? Heavenly Father, we, um, <clears throat> we thank you for this opportunity to come here, Father, and to, to learn from you through your servant, Bob, to have him open up the word, Father, and, and teach us about you, which is, is the purpose for it and purpose for him, to, that you've given us your word, that it would enlighten us and explain to us, and by the power of your spirit, that it would illuminate us into the, the, those things that we only start to just brush the surface of in the here and now as we're told that in the, the time to come, the age to come, that you would continuously reveal yourself to us and continuously and forever open up the new depths of truth to us about who you are. Let us be grateful for who you are, Father, that you are so great and so, so powerful and so awesome, Father, that, that, that we can't even comprehend in its fullness who you are. As we learned today about the Spirit being infinite and about your Spirit being all-encompassing, Father, as I remember from uh, Sinclair Ferguson who once said that we interpret the Spirit typically as something that's like a cloud, that's so like a mist that we can just walk into because it doesn't have substance. It, because it's your Spirit, Father, it's so full that, that we are the thing that is, that is missed and you walk before us. We thank you, Father, that we can have no fullness unless you complete us that you are full, that all fullness comes from you and all completeness comes to you and, and anything of substance only exists through you, Father. We ask that you would keep this in our hearts, Father, and that you would allow us to meditate on it, that you would allow us to grow from this truth and that through this, through this revelation, through this understanding, through this meditation, that you and you alone would be magnified and glorified in the hearts of your children. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.